This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Resonance 104.4. Welcome to the Electric Sheep Film Show with me, Virginie Selavi, and Alex Fitch. Hello. Today, our live guests are visual artist Graham Humphreys and London International Animation Festival director Nag Vladomeski. And we also have an interview with Peter Strickland, uh, director of Barbarian Sound Studio and the Duke of Burgundy, about his Radio 4 adaptation of the Stone Tape. Uh, I should mention also that the uh, track that opened the show was Fatback by Link Ray, and there is a reason for this track, which will be revealed later on in the show. Mm. Um, so, Graham, let's start with you. You have worked as an artist for 30 years, and you are best known for your posters for horror films such as The Evil Dead, Dream Demon, and Santa Sangre, as well as the sleeve for The Cramps of the Bone compilation. That's a little hint about the music. Um, your poster work has now been collected in a limited edition hardback uh, titled Drawing Blood, published by Proud. And there is also, I think, an exhibition of some of the paintings at Proud Camden, which finishes on Sunday, we should mention. Um, so what is connect the connection between the book and the exhibition? What can people see in the book and in the exhibition? Okay, the um, book is called 30 Years of Horror Art, Drawing Blood. And uh, well, it's actually 35 years, but I just wanted to sound a bit younger. Um, <laughs> the exhibition is really there to launch the book and uh, as a sort of retrospective of that period of time, uh, beginning with the Evil Dead poster, which uh, dates back to 1982, through to newer work, um, which is actually so new that it couldn't be in the book. Uh, the book was uh, completed um, in June this year. And since then, there's been uh, numerous pieces of work, some of which are on the exhibition now. Um, the, the book really is, is concentrating on the horror uh, stuff that I've done. Um, I've worked in many different fields throughout my 
illustration career. Um, simply that's how you make ends meet. But the horror art is really um, where my heart firmly is, and, and certainly over the last few years that's where most of my work has come from. So the exhibition concentrates on that, and so does the book. Uh, I've got some great contributions from people in the field as well, which kind of just um, gives a sort of a, a, a sort of setting really for the pieces in there. Um, I think the exhibition, it's, it's kind of a, a um, it was difficult to choose the pieces because I wanted a, a good cross-section of the stuff. Um, but had to be quite brutal because, you know, there's limited space there. But the book has about 140 images in it and the exhibition has about 30, 34 pieces. Um, and it must be quite exciting for people to actually be able to see the artwork because they are paintings. And so you paint with gouache on watercolour paper, I, I believe I've seen, That's I've correct. read in the introduction. <laughs> um, and, and this is a very traditional way of working, isn't it? And y y that has not really evolved in the sense that you've, you've kept to this very traditional uh, way of working over 30 years. Is that right? Yeah, I, it's a technique I developed whilst I was at art college and uh, it just seems that um, it is very comfortable for me to use and gives me the results I want with an element of uh, spontaneity and accident that's in there which you know shapes the the pieces um, I've, I've, although I understand you know people are very comfortable using digital uh, media for, for me I, I, I like the tactile quality of paint on paper there's something a little bit more aggressive about it and um, certainly given my music influences which have really kind of shaped the, the, the work that I do I mean we played a bit of Link Ray earlier on uh, who was obviously a big influence on the Cramps, and the Cramps were a, a key band for me um, uh, when I first started working. Certainly, whilst I was painting the Evil Dead artwork, I mean, literally, that, that, that was to a soundtrack of the Cramps. And for, for me, you know, that whole textural thing is, is very important in my work. And, you know, the Cramps are very raw, uh, and there's no sort of glossy, shiny edges there. And, and that's the way my work is as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, and and you've mentioned this connection between um, between horror and punk because punk is is the music that you said shaped your 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 view of art generally, life maybe. Certainly, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, life can be horrific sometimes. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the, the, it's uh, interesting. I've got a piece from uh, Brian James, the founder of the Damned, uh, in the book, and um, you know he, he'll he'll tell you that the uh, the Damned were formed with the name the Damned purely because of his love of horror films. Uh, you know, the Village of the Damned. And uh, certainly uh, with Dave Vanian's uh, stage presence was very much based on uh, Udo Kier's appearance in, in uh, um, Blood for Dracula, the uh, Anderson film. But uh, uh, yeah, certainly for me, a punk rock has always been akin to horror and um, uh, the Cramps, of course, are a great example of that. But, uh, you know, Susie Banshees, uh, The Damned, as I mentioned before. I mean, all these bands have a very sort of theatrical uh, uh, edge to them and... Uh, my, my work is really trying to echo that as well. I mean, there is a sense of theatre in it, also a lot of humour as well. I want, I want, you know, I think horror should be funny, um, as indeed a lot of punk rock is as well, though. Okay, and this, I guess it's also about uh, the the energy, maybe because there's something very visceral about your paintings, and you talked about that tactile aspect of painting. There's something physical about the way you paint, and the impression it creates is is very visceral. And I guess this is something maybe that can be uh, related to punk as well. Well, yeah, it's, I think that the artwork is is intended to be quite animated in many ways. I want it to 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 actually live and pulse. And yeah, life is very messy. It's it's not kind of clean and uh, sharp edged and my work is is, is you know quite messy I'm, I, my, my wall is covered in paint as is a desk and the computer <laughs> the keyboard uh, the telephone I can't even read numbers anymore they're just covered in so much paint but um, I, I love splashing paint around I love the the, the, the marks you make with the paint and uh, um, you know when, when a brush gets a bit grizzled and old it makes you know far more interesting marks as well so and new brushes are you know quite quite irritating to work with so they, they get destroyed quite quickly anyway though but uh, but yeah it's, it's important to me that the the work is um, painted fairly swiftly. I, I don't hang around on the work at all, and um, I give myself strict deadlines. And I, ha I have a sense of when something's finished, even though it may not look perfect. Uh, that there's a, a sort of a, 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 a life that you can't, you know, if you squeeze it too hard, suddenly it just, um, you know, it dies. So there, there's this kind of living pulse to it, and I, I know when to stop and just keep that little baby rocking. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and you, in fact, I mean, you talked about your interest in music, but you actually started with illustrations for record sleeves and 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 some illustration work for the enemy. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When I first moved to London, I just sought out anybody who would uh, uh, be interested in the, the small amount of work I produced in my folio. And uh, the NME was a logical um, first stop. Um, initially, they weren't that interested, but um, as in, in, in many things in life, you know, luckily uh, uh, somebody who was a friend of a friend ended up being the art director there and uh, contacted me straight away. So I began quite a long relationship with the NME and uh, uh, through through different art directors. But um, it was a great way to um, experiment with uh, uh, different techniques uh, because, of course, at the time it was all black and white work as well. Um, so there, there's great scope for using, you know, photocopies and um, uh, uh, paint and ink and uh, pencil and all, all sorts of things, just making lots of mess, but um, really trying to uh, evoke the texture of the music. And also it seemed uh, that you were doing that at a time where photographic collage was the norm for all kinds of illustrations. And so by bringing painting into the mix, it felt almost like you were bringing cl a classicism back to illustration that perhaps was beginning to get lost um, at the time. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not really a purist and uh, I've got no sort of great mission to um, keep something alive. Uh, for me, it's just the way I work and um, if, it, if it functions well, uh, for the client, then then that that's great. Um, for me, the, the tradition of um, paint in, in uh, popular culture, certainly film poster work and album cover work, is something that you know there's no reason for it to ever go away because um, it, it just you know ha has such a, a sort of wonderful uh, quality. I, I mean, I grew up looking at the artwork of people like Drew Struz and mm. and uh, absolutely loved the lurid posters you'd see, um, particularly in the 70s, uh, all the great disaster movie films, um, those were really what propelled me, I think, ultimately, just these kind of incredible uh, sort of theatrical pieces with, you know, really bright colours and scenes of disaster and horror, uh, fantastic stuff. And uh, that's all I ever wanted to do, was uh, do disaster movie posters. <laughs> Well, and also, I mean, it was the era of the so-called video nasty, and a lot of the tape covers of those kind of movies, because they were low-budget films, are still would never do justice. But if you had a more kind of evocative painting on the front, it would probably be bigger budget, for a better word, than any of actually the contents of the movie itself. Well, yeah, indeed. And I get a lot of people saying that, um, you know, they remember the artwork in the video shops, uh, they remember my covers, and I, I can't remember half of them, to be quite honest, but... Um, uh, but yeah, certainly, I think after the success of The Evil Dead, uh, a lot of people kind of thought, well, that, that worked for that title, so perhaps it'll work for our title. So I got a lot of, um, you know, repeat uh, uh, requests, if, if you like. Um, it's interesting because I think that I didn't really understand that the, these titles have any longevity at the time. I mean, certainly when I did the artwork for The Evil Dead, um, you know, it's a low-budget B-movie, um, and my, my work was low-budget B-movie artwork, but um, it, it's interesting how, how that's just lasted all these years, and you know people still regard it as being um, a sort of touchstone in, in their youth, and uh, it's, it's you know that, that, that makes me very proud, I have to say. And, and it's interesting looking at the artwork in the exhibition; it's the oldest piece there, but um, it's actually quite a small painting. Uh, and the main reason for that is that I had no money at the time, so I said buy my paper, cut it up quite small, and just use those little pieces and uh, uh, budget. So and and so, can you explain how you uh, got to do the cover for the Evil Dead? How did it all come about? Well, like most things in life, it's being in the right place at the right time. Um, I, I, it's quite convoluted, but ultimately it was all about uh, somebody saying, oh, there's a new company called Palace Pictures, why don't you pop along to see them? So I made an appointment, took my folio along, and um, Steve Woolley wasn't actually there on the day. He was the person I was supposed to be meeting, but somebody else was who said, actually, Steve will love this work, and we've got this new film coming out, uh, The Evil Dead. Um, it's horror, uh, we think you'll like it, so perhaps come along, have a look, and see if you want to work on it. And, uh, of course, I jumped at the chance and um, loved the film. And uh, the rest is, um, you know, a career. <laughs> and and at the same time, I mean, this is quite an extraordinary time for you because at the same time you got the the commission, uh, to, you, you created the sleeve for the Crimes of the Bone compilation, and you were quite closely involved with the with the record, weren't you? Well, that's right. The the Cramps thing came because um, uh, uh, the band were having a 
a sort of contretemps, shall we say, with uh, Miles Copeland, who was their uh, uh, their label manager in the UK, and um, they weren't allowed to um, uh, create any new records at the time. So the compilation idea was really a, another way of milking the band, I guess, in, in their sort of hiatus. And uh, um, the chance to actually do the cover just uh, it just came through the art director there, um, a good friend of mine, Vermillion Sands, no longer with us, sadly. But uh, it was her idea that we shouldn't stick with the American sleeve, do, do something quite different for the UK market. And at the time, they had no uh, title for the album. And uh, I'd been out to a Curry House the night before and had chicken off the bone and thought, well, what a great name for an album, off the bone. Because, you know, it's essentially just little bits of torn off the, the corpse, if you like, of um, the, the body of work. Uh, so, so that's how that came about. But, you know, for me, the idea was to create a, a classic B-movie kind of sensation. Um, and the idea of doing 3D just came into my head and... Uh, uh, the record company jumped out of that and um, you know, I think it worked quite well for the record. I'm embarrassed now about the artwork I think it should have been so much better but I yeah, always look back on my work and um, you always see you know, what, what, how you could have improved that so one day I will revisit that artwork probably in full colour and it will be a little bit better I think Right, now seems like a good time to listen to the Quams <laughs> The sun goes down and the moon comes up I turn into a teenage Google map Yeah, I cruise through the city and I roam the streets I'm looking for something that is nice to eat You better die when I show up I'm the ninth-haired hunter looking for some head With the way out body underneath that head Yeah, I'll get you, baby, with a little luck Cause I'm a teenage tiger and a by the cramps. Hmm. Both that album and indeed a lot of the movie artwork that you've done has been for American films and American records. Did you find that having made those images for the release of those items in the UK that your artwork was then travelling to America and being appreciated by people over there? Not at the time. Okay. Uh, this has been a, a recent um, 
development and, and uh, you know, I can praise Facebook for this though it's <laughs> been great a great way to get my work out there and seen elsewhere so I think for an American audience that there weren't, weren't that many people that were aware of the work uh, as you say you know it's there to feed the UK audience not the American audience they had their own campaigns and artwork there so it's only recently though yes it's I, I've been able to start working with um, some US clients Canadian clients and and it has sort of gone slightly global if I may say but um you know in that niche kind of way mm. <laughs> global and niche actually work together but uh, <laughs> yeah it's true I don't think people were aware of the artwork way back then in the 80s mm. and, and it has been certainly only in this you know 21st century that um the work's been seen mm. well I suppose your most uh, globally remote um client then was for the recent uh, New Zealand horror comedy what we do in the shadows the uh, vampire film by the makers of um comedy music show which is called the flight of the concert <laughs> i got there eventually <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah that that was um really that came as a a, a, a private commission through um, um a gentleman who loved the film was setting up a company called the silver silver bow gallery uh with the idea of doing limited edition screen prints of of cult films and I had seen the film and absolutely loved it. And he, he was aware of this. And so, you know, it, it was an obvious choice, really. And um, it, it was important to him that he had the uh, uh, cooperation of the makers, that he wanted to license the thing officially. And so, yeah, I, I know that they're very, very happy with it. And in fact, they, they started using it in their own publicity mm. uh, down under. Nice. But yeah, I'm very proud of that piece because it's it's rarely that you actually get to work on something that you actually really, really love and feel passionate about. And that film I actually did, I mean, it's, it's a perfect synthesis of horror and comedy uh, in a way that, um, you know, I remember watching Carry On Screaming as a kid and thinking, it doesn't get better than this. It's <laughs> <laughs> Carry On and Hammer all together. Fantastic. So what we do in the shadows is really a, a, a sort of contemporary um, and revisit of that, I guess. Mm. I mean, it's interesting that horror is the common theme for a lot of your movie posters, but it means that also encompasses everything from films that actually have been banned, like The Evil Dead, to horror films that are aimed at children, like The Monster Club. Do you alter your style at all when it comes to a film that's aimed at, say, a younger audience? Yeah, I think you naturally do this. Any job I get, it's, it's always a, a, a fresh brief that you have to approach in a particular way. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm quite aware of what the, uh, um, you know, the viewer might be whether it's a child or an adult or um you know indeed a, a different territory you have to be aware of the sensitivities involved and the you know, cultural difference uh, which yeah, might be as simple as just you know a child adult but um i think that uh, it's it's one of those things that you kind of want to retain a thread of your work throughout everything um obviously if people come to you they're coming to you for a particular reason and uh, they expect you to deliver you know a, a, an ilk of work um, but yeah, certainly, um, I have to uh, be aware of, uh, you know, what the job is and what the uh, constraints might be, and um, consider consider, you know, who's going to be looking at the work. What well, one of the things that your work is most admired for is your use of colour, um, and there's something very interesting in the introduction to your book about one of the influences on 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 your use of colour, um, which is Tibetan Buddhism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I suppose it is a bit odd, isn't it? No, it's very interesting. I mean, so really, I think my love of colour, uh, particularly in the work I do, is, is really, um, it, it comes from those early posters in the 70s, but um, uh, certainly I've always found music gave me colours in my head, and uh, certainly cramps I found to be intensely colourful. But the Tibetan thing is really, a, a, I guess, a more recent thing. I guess I went to... Um, the Himalayas for the first time in about 1989 and I was struck by the intensity of the colours uh, where you get a rarefied atmosphere I mean the, the, the UV is quite strong up there and um, uh, the atmosphere is quite thin so so the sunlight sunlight is incredibly strong and direct and those colours just really leap out I mean just it's very intense and uh, uh, it really la uh, left a lasting impression on me and um, it's something which sticks to all my work now and I've actually um, been on a few courses looking at Tibetan art and uh, trying to uh, recreate some of the imagery. I mean, the, the sacred imagery is quite amazing. The um, that that form of Buddhism, the Tibetan Buddhism, is it's got a lot of uh, shamanism in it. Though it's it's quite unique, and um, the the imagery is quite 
brutal and um, quite surprisingly horrific in many cases. I mean, uh, lots of um, cadavers being picked to pieces by vultures and uh, dancing skeletons. I mean, it's, it's you know, all the stuff I love. But, you know, with a spiritual dimension, of course. Though. Of course, of course. Um, and this, this sort of phrase in the introduction I love, you talk about uh, how you wanted to fight the tyranny of the wholesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if there's a mission in my work, that's probably it. It's true. <laughs> Excellent. What a perfect place to stop. I think uh, before we uh, carry on with our programme, we're going to listen to Rocking Bones, which I think is very fitting, by Elroy Dittle, which has been covered by The Crumps. Roll on, roll on, roll on, roll on, rock on, rock on, rock on, rock on, bum bum, bum bum, bum bum. Well, there's still a lot of rhythm in the bum. I wanna leave a happy memory, but I go, I wanna leave something to let the whole world know that the rock and roll daddy has done by stone, but it's gonna keep. Rock along after I'm gone. Roll on, roll on, roll on, roll on. Rock on, rock on, rock on, rock on, rock on, rock on, rock on. Well, there's still a lot of rhythm in rock and roll. Well, when I die, don't you bring me a top one? Just hang these bones up on the wall. Beneath these bones, let these words be seen. The silver burning gears of the popping machine. Roll on, roll on, roll on, roll on. Rock on, rock on, rock on, rock on. Pop on, pop on, pop on. Well, there's still a lot of rhythm in it, rock and roll. Hey, I worried about tomorrow, just thinking of the night. My bones are getting restless, gonna do it up loud. A few more times around the hardwood floor before they turn out the lights and close the door. Oh, 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 oh. Rock on, rock on, rock on, rock on, rock on. Well, there's still a lot of rhythm in rock and roll. What's the name of that track? Oh, that was Rocking Bones by Elroy Dittle. Nice. Coming up next, uh, thinking of the connections between music, sound effects and horror, um, you'll hear my interviewer, director Peter Strickland. He's best known for his movies, Barbarian Sound Studio, in which a audio mixer guy, I believe that's a technical term. Sound um, engineer. That's the word, <laughs> in which a sound engineer uh, working on an Italian horror movie in the 1970s slowly but surely goes insane, uh, working on the special effects. So it's entirely suitable that he was chosen by the BBC to do a new Radio 4 adaptation of Nigel Neal's classic TV horror The Stone Tape for this Halloween. The Stone Tape is available to download from the iPlayer until the end of the month and the version that you can download has a different mix to the broadcast version in that it was recorded in what's called 3D sound. Uh, for people who don't know what that entails, uh, you might think it's some kind of 5.1 mix or something. But what you do is you have like a mannequin or a dummy and on either side of the head you attach microphones where you would normally put headphones if you're listening back to it. And therefore the soundscape that you record using those microphones creates a more surround soundy environment when you listen back to it through headphones and that's the version you get when you download it. Preceding my interview with Peter is a clip from the stone tape. That's odd isn't it? A cellar sunk into the ground like this under a big old abandoned house and these walls are bone dry. Freezing cold. I thought the builders were going to do it up a bit. Not anymore it seems. Jenna says they got cold feet. Cold feet? Don't give me that. I met that lot. Bunch of local lads. Thoroughly underwhelming. They wouldn't even take cash in hand. They're too bone-eyed to care about anything like that. Bit of graffiti here. Look, properly etched in. Until I am no longer in that room. Ooh, cryptic. Oh, forget that. I'm sorry, but I just, I just don't understand those stairs. They don't reach the far wall. They just stop. They hang. It's probably a botched attempt at a pulpit. When you lot are finished discussing home improvements, might I kindly suggest that we carry on with the tests? Thermal conductivity, 419 watts. 
Magnetic opening diamagnetic. Young's modulus 80 GPA. Shear modulus 27 GPA. Bulk modulus 99 GPA. Poisson ratio 0.41. This is your second radio play after the Len continuum, um, but I guess with the stone tape you were bringing more filmic techniques to radio in the sense that it was more of a kind of surround sound soundscape that you were creating. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the first one was a, like a straightforward um, drama. I didn't really want to do anything gratuitous with, with the sound, but um, with a stone tape, that is so um, inherently part of the, of the narrative, which is mm. part of the appeal, really. Um, and also, I think just um, there are a lot of records that I love, and I always felt it's going to be shoehorned in into a script and there's no point in doing that but with stone tape it was just crying to have these these ideas informing the whole play you know such as um Alvin Lucia's um I'm sitting in a room or Robert Ashley's automatic writing um blank tapes by by Reynolds so um yeah I know it was a great opportunity to I think pay tribute more 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 to, to music than anything to do with film I mean I don't think any I mean, I think okay the original stone tape of course that that was um, part of the whole thing but otherwise I wasn't really thinking about any any other films at all hmm. I have a bit of a cold by the way oh that's all right <laughs> which is actually quite annoying because I I needed one for Foley for this play <laughs> one of the characters is always um intaking mucus and um no one had a cold on set and I tried to do it in Foley and then as soon as we finished I got a cold oh, oh dear I'll, I'll be generous and give it to you over the phone. How about that, that? Thank you. There aren't any uh, snot wranglers that work in the industry, then. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, in, in all fairness, I mean, we just didn't have time, even if I had. Just so many things we wanted to put in there, but it just, I think that's the way radio is. A lot, it's, it's not like a film where you can just go on forever, finding <laughs> things up, and that's it, really. Indeed. Uh, they were pretty generous as they were, and they gave me more than most. I suppose because you recorded it using this 3D microphone that picks up sounds in all directions, did that add any differences in terms of mixing the tracks together for radio? Or did you do two different edits, one for broadcast and one for download? Well, there are two different edits. When we did the first um, assembly edit, that the, the dummy head was mixed kind of automatically in a, in a, well, in a track... Right, and you know, we had, I think John, who was on Pro Tools doing, doing the editing. I mean, he had what, one track for the, for the straightforward edit and then another track for the, for the dummy head. Um, it was quite complicated with the dummy head because, I mean, the radio, it's so, what, what is the word? You know, you only, only listen to the audio, so the edits are really important. That So I think within sentences, we often have about three or four edits, mm. which can be a nightmare with, with, with the dummy head in terms of the whole spatial quality you know if an actor moves slightly that, that that's going to you know um corrupt things slightly but i mean only the last minute we realized you know that that's a bit of spare time and um not not for the not for the radio edit but when you had the binaural so we could just i think all we did was just extend some of the things which just had to be shortened for radio um so the the screen decay at the end of the play we extended that mm. Um, some of James's um, resonance experiments were extended, but as far as I remember, there was no dialogue extension. It, it just wasn't, wasn't time to do that. Mm. It'd also be great if they released the soundtrack, the, the actual sounds. I mean, James did a lot of stuff, and mm. Lars as well. I mean, there were two separate, well, there are three separate components for this. Well, four, actually. You had James Cargill doing all the um, electronic tones. Mm. He did the library music at the beginning you had Andrew Lars doing the vocal sounds and you had Steve Haywood and Ralph Rand taking what was done and putting it to all these analog um well, there was no effects I mean they were just um with their hands just um manipulating the Nago 4D and mm. then Eloise Whitmore who did the um the whole mix and the foley and everything and then Chris Pike who worked with Eloise on the 3D sound but it's interesting with, with the Naga, I think when when we recorded that, the fidelity is so good that actually we, we can barely have a difference between that and, and digital. And we wanted this kind of thing where you um, you feel the difference.
when you go from tape to, to real sound. Mm. Um, and we didn't want to cheat. I mean, I think Steve gave us the option of using you know, a, a high gain, so it kind of sounds a bit crunchier. But I felt that's a bit of a shortcut, and I thought, no, if another 4D is that good, let's let it sound that, that, that good. Mm. Um, so I think what we did was, um, when we used the 3D sound, we used mono, which seems kind of perverse. You know, we were spending all this money on this incredibly expensive studio, um, <laughs> and then we're just using mono for about 30% of the whole play. Um, but what, what, what that does is, it's really interesting, is, is the, the, the contrast is, is a lot more... I don't know, it's, it's, you know, if, if you have 3D sound the whole way through, you, you kind of become numb to it somehow. So I mm. think by, by dipping in, into mono for when it switches to tape, that seemed like a good way of solving that, being the whole thing. Mm. And also, I guess, because the play is very specifically located in 1979, you wanted to probably limit yourself to the technology that was available at the time so it sounded authentic. Well, that was the thing. I mean, even though we, we, we actually recorded the whole thing on, 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 on digital, but mm. when we did the tape parts, that was done on the Naga 4D, which was going donkey's ears, I, I think. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, what was, obviously, the original play was 1971, but mm. um, by moving it, you know, up to the end of that decade, a lot of the ideas or the possibilities kind of of, you know, sounds fitting in smaller spaces that doesn't seem so preposterous as mm. it would have done in 1971. Um, and I really wanted this idea that it's not clearly a ghost, you know, that there's much mm. more in, in, the, in this version of the fact that this is actually something that they can um, kind of monetize this somehow mm. um, and either use it for uh, the consumer market, which is essentially, you know, uh, what the MP3 generation has done somehow. Mm. Or, I think that the Leo character even talks about it being for um, MI5, MI6, you know, CIA yeah. and all that in terms of, you know, setting up a whole house to record. So I kind of wanted to expand on, the, on, on those ideas and really just um, get into this idea of how we perceive recording and playback space mm. set against the time we are living in. It's all dictated to you by what is happening at that time. So obviously in the 70s, you were still thinking about side A and side B. I mean, to get beyond that concept is quite strange. Yeah. Um, whereas now, obviously, you know, I think younger people don't even know about side A and side B. Mm. For you to move into radio, it seems almost a natural progression, particularly following the film Barbarian Sound Studio, which was about also an obsessive attempt to find some meaning in layered sound. There seem to be very much parallels with the stone tape. Is there just something about audio that you think perhaps other filmmakers don't explore that you've had an opportunity to to do more of in your work? I, I don't pay too much attention to that really. It's just it's stuff that I find works for me in, in, in some way. And I, mean, I wouldn't say it's always that way. I mean, the, the last one I did, we had nothing to do with sound. We kind of do our best with it, but we, we, mm. we didn't want to be emphatic with it. We didn't want to kind of be gratuitous. Um, so, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose a lot of filmmakers get their cues from, from painting. Um, mm. For me, it was always from sound. And so, I mean, even the last film, I think um, the whole structure of it comes from listening to a lot of minimalist music and so on, even though it was not a sound film. Mm. So yeah, I, I just I just grew up listening to a lot of records that I found fascinating. I was always dying to use sort of Alvin Lucia's ideas um, in something, and I think the Stone Tape was was the perfect perfect way of, of doing that, in a way of, of working backwards from from what Lucia was doing. He was trying to um, annihilate his voice, and mm. we were trying to do the opposite. He's trying to bring back this voice from annihilation. Somehow. <laughs> and I, I think I think you know on on on, on the one hand is it's very kind of dry academic um piece of work um but on the other hand it's something very very almost sad in a way that he's this character that kind of doesn't like his voice and um he wants the dominant frequencies of, of, of this room to kind of smooth out all these um i think he just wants to um let his voice just be subsumed somehow mm. but also thinking I can relate to that in some way. yeah no definitely <laughs> But also thinking just, you know, even with your debut film, Kathleen Varga, 
you created a lot of atmosphere in that film just from discordant noises overlaid of images of landscapes. So I think, you know, as a filmmaker, it's a tool that perhaps isn't used experimentally enough by some people. And by utilising it, you're experimenting with the possibilities of it purely as a kind of a threatening um, presence within the, um, the filmic tools. Well, in hindsight, yes. Uh, when we made that film, that was a habit of working. Because I, I think I, I, I took this long gap between films and just got into sort of making sound stuff. Mm. So I developed this habit of working, um, which no one gave a damn about at the time. So <laughs> it didn't, it didn't, it, I mean, I'm not saying that as a kind of sour grip. I'm just saying it because it just, t- it just took me, took me by, by surprise when, when the film got recognised for the sound. I was like, what? Because we always did that on record, and mm. no one really, really could have paid attention. So I never thought in, in a million years it's going to be, you know, have this kind of. I, just, I was just making this story and working by by, by habit, really. And then obviously that shock, that very pleasant shock when when we made, we made that film. That's what. Well, that's, that's kind of what led on on to Bavaria. Now, mm. wow, and here all these amazing. Not, I'm not saying my music is amazing. <laughs> I'm thinking of other other records which I really loved, which never really got any kind of attention on record. But if you use those ideas combined with imagery, then somehow it kind of clicks with, with, with people. I mean, I think that the, the best example is um, Pantelevsky's music for um, The Shining. Mm. I think on record, I mean, many people just find it too academic and so on, but on film, there's something about the um, timbers, the um, dissonance that really ignites the, I don't know, the, the way you see the, the, these scenes and so on. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I think a long way of answering that question is uh, I was just working by, by, by habit, really. Yeah. And then, obviously, I think after Varga, I thought, oh, this is interesting. You know, people are responding to sound, which um, it never happened before, really. Mm. And obviously, um, you're a child of the 1970s but it's a kind of temporal location that you keep on returning to. Obviously, the stone tape is set in 1979. The opening credits of Duke of Burgundy, you know, hark back to the style of old opening credits and um, Barbarian Sound Studio set in the 70s as well. Is there something about that decade that you're almost trying to exorcise in a way through your work? Uh, I think it's just childhood. I think that's all it is. I think many directors just reference their childhood. If you think of the 80s, then you had, um, you know, Back to the Future, Gremlins, Blue Velvet, they're all going back back, back to their childhoods in the 50s. So I think mm. people's childhoods are just a lot more intense, perhaps. Just whatever you experience and perceive is just somehow just embeds itself in you more. I think whatever I perceive now just goes straight through the other end. <laughs> Water for ducks back. Um, so just the way I saw television, the way I heard music, just somehow had this kind of slightly uncanny feel to it. And mm. I think that kind of stays with you. Um, is it a particularly odd decade? Maybe not. It's just, <laughs> you know, I think this generation of people now, you know, just happen to be kids in the 70s. And I think in 20 years, you'll have people looking at, at the, the 1990s and perhaps a strange way where for me, the 1990s was completely kind of straight. Yeah. Um, so I think that's all it is. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, I've become aware that I would keep going. I mean, I think that Varga was not. That, that, was, that no. was the only contemporary, contemporary thing I did. Um, mm. But for some reason, I always end up Decade, yeah. <laughs> I mean, was um, the original Stone Tape something that made an impression on you when you were young? No, because I didn't see it when I was young. Okay. Um, I, I was born in '73, um, and I must have missed it when it was on. When it was on TV. In the oh, of course. I saw yeah. It, I saw it much later. Mm. I saw it um, sometime in the last decade. Mm. Um, so it didn't really have the same. You know, I think a lot of people I spoke to found it absolutely terrifying when, when they were children. Mm. But for me. I was more into it for the whole sonic notion of the mm. explore all these ideas about natural acoustics and so on. Um, I found it un- uncanny. What we wanted to do um, when Matthew and I, Matthew Graham, when we when he wrote, wrote the script, was focused more on the melancholic side with Jill, um, mm. the slightly um, <sighs> creepy nature of it. But I think. I never really found it terrifying, no. Mm. Um, I was, I think the stuff I found terrifying was more mainstream, like <laughs> The Omen and so on, you know. Mm. Billy Whitehall's eyes and so on. But, um, 
so yeah, um, I mean, it's strange. I mean, I mean, the stuff, I mean, even like M.R. James, again, I, I think the only one that scares me is um, Whistle and I'll Come to You. Mm. And it's interesting that with this radio version of the Stone Tape, you've cast a couple of comedians uh, in lead roles, Julian Ryan Tutt and Julian Barrett. Is that because, in a way, the heightened performances work well with horror, particularly um, on radio where it's just voice? Um, there wasn't really... I mean, we've, we've, I didn't really pay attention too much to the whole... Uh, well, I mean, there's definitely some kind of humour in, 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 in the script, but mm. in terms of the casting, I just thought, you know, he, he would be interesting. Mm. Um, I mean, what, what I wanted to do, um, I, I, I guess it goes back to the whole thing of, you know, when you hear about bands like Joy Division, you have this very gloomy <laughs> um, persona, and then you kind of hear about, you know, they're just a bunch of lads messing around. So, And I think, you know, having worked in studios a lot, it is quite laddy in there. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, and it, it is, you kind of get this kind of cabin fever, people just get on each other's nerves, they're just start messing around and playing up. So I wanted that element of that, that kind of banter you have in mm. the studio. And I, I mean, especially back in the 70s where you had this kind of casual sexism. Mm. I think to be a, a, a woman at that time um, with all those blokes must have been quite, you know, um, unpleasant. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, and also I think what, what, what I like about that is, you know, it kind of sets up this kind of fairly... Um, innocent framework where I think when, when the creepiness does come in, it kind of somehow it's a bit more of a, of a contrast perhaps. So I, I didn't, I it was not mm. interested in having this whole creepy atmosphere throughout the whole thing. I mean, the first half is almost like, you know, it's sort of a bad version of 40 Towers. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, slowly things happen. And, you know, I, I, I never wanted to have any kind of um, background music. You know, every mm. single sound in, in this play is, diegetic you know everything comes from what, what the characters are doing even if the radio's on the background and so on um so yeah i, I never really wanted to kind of creep people out with all that kind of stuff mm. I, I also i think you know i think the films I, I find scary you know are the ones where nothing is signposted too much mm. a lot of the terror i find you know, like if you look at hanukkah's films that's that's stone cold silent um so really um it is that thing of only using the sound for when, when, the, when the characters are employing this, you know, machinery that does this kind of sonic drilling, which is, which is a great sound in itself. I mean, you don't really need more, more than that. And it, it's a sound that I like, but there's not, there's no emotive element to it. It's purely cold and hard, and I, I really, I really enjoy that. Mm. Cool. Okay. Oh, well, thanks so much. All right. Cheers. The interview with Peter Strickland was recorded on Sennheiser microphones via an Apple G5 Power Mac and Adobe Audition. In case you're wondering why I said all that, it's because it's a running gag in the stone tape that all of the scientists are announcing what technology they're using to record all the sound effects. <laughs> and they actually have that at the beginning of the end credits as well. Stone tape was recorded using... <laughs> it's, really, it's really nice. The stone tape is available to download in both its stereo and 3D binaural mixes uh, from the BBC iPlayer until the end of the month. All right, so now let's talk to our second live guest uh, for tonight, Nag Radomirski, director of the London International Animation Festival, which runs at various venues in London, uh, including the Barbican, Halls Hospital, uh, University of East London, from the 4th to the 13th of December. Um, so Nag, the festival is now in its 12th year. Um, how did it start and how has it evolved over the years? Essentially, um, it started pretty much as a hobby. Um, <laughs> I mean, we were talking about the way I was quite interested in what Graham was saying in his humble beginnings. I, I suppose punk had a, a massive influence on me as well in the way that I've gone about things over the years. But um, as with all of my endeavours, um, essentially, I had been an animator, um, continued to be an animator when I have the time, but um, I decided through uh, visiting various festivals around the world with, with one of the films that I had made, I realised there wasn't really anything showing the scope of animation in London. So I decided to set up 
at the time, 12 years ago, just a weekend, a weekend event at um, the old Rupert Street Cinema, sadly no longer with us in, in Soho. Um, and it was a great success. And to cut a long story short, it's gone from, ye- from over the last 12 years, it's grown from a, a weekend festival showing 60 or 70 short films to a 10-day festival showing over 400 films now. Do, do you feel the attitude to animation has changed in Britain? I still feel I'm continually having to uh, explain what, um, why we are screening animation. We're, we're still people still when they think of animation generally. I think think they think of it as cartoons for kids, mm. um, and in some ways, um, you know, I mean, I'm I'm not denigrating that. It's fantastic, but there is such a huge in other world out there, and, and our festival exists to screen the the more independent uh, animation from all around the world that, that does exist and doesn't really get uh, a chance to be seen on screen. Um, this, this year you open, um, you've, you've often opened in the past with a feature film. This year you're opening with a, a talk and a screening of uh, films by British animator Barry Purves. Um, it's, why did you decide to, to sort of, um, to, why did you choose him to open the festival? Well, Barry's work, I mean, he's, his work I think sums up the whole ethos of the festival. Um, he's been making all different types of films um, for, for close to 40 years. He's got an amazing body of short film, short independent film, um, which he essentially instigated himself, got the funding himself and sort of worked with small independent um, companies around the world, different countries. But his bread and butter work as well has been children's TV. He's also worked, uh, made many, many commercials. Um, he directs opera as well. He's a very avid um, theatre producer and opera producer. Um, and he's also, he's he's worked on feature films. He's worked in Hollywood. He worked with Tim Burton uh, for a little while on Mars Attacks and um, also worked for a while on Lord of the Rings. And he, um, it's his 60th year this year, it's his birthday, so we thought it's about time to afford him a retrospective that the session's called The Naked Animator and he'll be there with us in a robe and he promises, <laughs> he promises to reveal um, anything and everything that we want to ask him. He'll be as honest as he can and uh, he's apparently got a lot of things he wants to get off his chest and... Uh, explain to the uh, audience on opening night. Okay, right. Well, I'm particularly excited about Death's Shriek of the Birdman, the (laughs) programme of films by Robert Morgan. What can you tell us about that? That sounds amazing. Well, um, I think, you know, there seems to be a theme of horror running through uh, everything tonight, but um, Robert certainly fits into that um, that style. He's been... um, He's another amazing stop-motion animator, um... He's been making films for about 15 years. Um, all um, He's made them all basically himself. He's a one-person show. He's got an amazing sound designer he works with, and sound is incredibly important in his film, a guy called Mark Ashworth. Um, but Robert, um, he, he works within the horror genre, and um, his films, um, I mean, he, he claims he was... He, his films sort of came, all come to him in different visions. He was born he, in a haunted house, he claims, in Yateley. And he, uh, he, um, he's extremely meticulous in his work. He's, uh, yeah, some of his films are four or five minutes long. They take two or three years to make. His most, or his most recent film, or two two before last, actually, his penultimate films, a film called Bobby Yeah. That um, that um, is a 20-minute magnum opus. It's got something like eight or nine puppets in it, which is many more than normally has. But his um, his attention to detail is really interesting because he, um, he... I remember he told me this story about one of the puppets in Bobby Yeah. He spent... Um, Robert spent a year 
collecting his toenails, <laughs> to, which he then sculpted into one of the um, wow. one of the puppets in the film. So it's a year's worth of Robert's toenails made this amazing puppet. So wow. When you see the film, it does actually. Okay, do. it I adds a certain resonance actually to the. After the this, film. I think we have to go to music now. <laughs> well, I was going to tell you what happened. I went out last night, and I got hitched up. When I woke up, his morning should have seen what I had in the bed with me. He jumped up out of the bed, pulled his hand down his eye, looked at me like a guy in Canada that commodity me. He said, he said, So this time we're way up yet. We got all alone. The thing was going to get right. She jumped out of the car. She put her hand down her eyes. She looked at me like a dying box in them dollar out cheap. And she said, she said, she said. So this time went away up here. No, we did went away there, yeah. Got all along. Ain't no sound like this. Hazel Atkins with She Said. And I should mention at this point, before I forget, that all the songs uh, we are playing tonight, uh, apart from the actual so uh, song by the Crumbs, are songs that the Crumbs covered. Right, so let's go back to NAG and London International uh, Film uh, Animation uh, Festival. Um, and you've also got a selection of Japanese animation called Beyond Anime. What, is, what, what sort of thing are you showing? What is Beyond Anime? Well, there's, um, there's a, a huge collective, different parts of Japan, of um, independent animators who... Um, in some ways, they're rebelling against anime and um, the work that uh, most people generally um, sort of uh, realize or think of when they think of Japanese animation, like the Studio Ghibli work. And these are um, very young, um, independent animators. They, there's two very influential film schools out there, the um, Tokyo University of Arts, which... Um, Again, um, there's uh, some amazing teachers out there who, um, like Koji Yamamura, who's a, a, a quite an amazing body of work. And these um, these Japanese filmmakers are just they've um, they've come together and they formed a collective. A lot of them, um, which is called the Calf Collective, and a lot of their work is just it's got a, a particular sensibility about it that you just don't get to see. It's. I think. I think it is particularly Japanese, but it's hard to actually describe. 
but you see the films and you think that's a Japanese film and they're um, quite bizarre um, beautifully uh, produced beautifully drawn often usually very most of them are hand drawn um, quite watercolour influenced type look to them mm. but quite um, odd subject matters about them so uh, so we're screening um, screening uh, a session of those at the um, at the festival and so uh, we, we've we've shown a lot of Japanese o- animation over the years and there does generally seem to be a, an air of uh, people wanting to see more so uh, so that's what we're going to do Excellent. That sounds good. You've also got normally you've you've got um, a focus on a specific country, and this year I didn't see that in the program. However, you have um, a tribute to the Netherlands Institute of Animated Film. Um, so, you, you did you not decide? Did you decide this year that you wouldn't um, go for a specific country, but at the same time you are honouring sort of Dutch animation, I guess. Yeah. Um that's exactly right. I mean, generally we do have a country we focus on, but um, as be- with our sort of um, specialised programmes, often those are the programmes that we can spend two to three years putting together, researching, writing the essays uh, that um, accompany the, ca- the festival catalogue, um, talking to all the filmmakers. And um, this particular program uh, which uh, this particular screening which is a, a tribute to the Netherlands International um, animated filmmakers uh, co-op um, essentially um, it became such a major project for us that we we thought that would be that would take the place of this year's country of focus so we actually have um, three of the people three of the filmmakers coming over from from the Netherlands to talk as well at that screening. Um, Netherlands International Animation Filmmakers Co-op is quite a mouthful, NIAF <laughs> for sure. Um, they, they were around for about 20 years and they're sort of um, they're an amazing institution based in um, Amsterdam and um, they were a collective whereby they would allow filmmakers to spend um, up to a year making films so they would get the budgets together from the central government and then they would be the actors producers for this collect these collective of filmmakers um, for the first 10 to 12 years it was Dutch filmmakers then they opened it out and filmmakers from all over Europe would go over there and make their films and they, they produce an amazing body of work sadly it was shut down um, about a year ago so it doesn't exist anymore uh, and it's left a massive hole in, in the Dutch animation world but um, there's the uh, main producer a guy called Tom Crone will be coming over to talk at that screening as well as um, two of the filmmakers Digna van der Poot and Zach Rude <laughs> will, be, will be coming over to, to as an added bonus to talk about that um, and just quickly to um, finish on the very exciting program of the uh, uh, London International Animation Festival, um, there's also been in recent years a rising number of animated documentaries, um, and you've got a program of, of that, um, a selection of that in the program. Um, so, what are the topics this year? Again, um, it's something that um, we've noticed over the last five or ten years, really, that there's a growing growing um, group of people who are, make animated documentaries. What I particularly like about that style of filmmaking, I, I think with documentary, and I think a lot of live-action documentary filmmakers are realising that, that with animation you can actually visualise a lot of things that you can't actually do in live action. So that's why a lot of well, several live action filmmakers are, t- are tending to use animation, whether it's in little parts of the film or or make a whole film about it. But the subject matters really vary. Um, this year we've got th- in that particular screening um, we've got some very heavy subject matters, like a- about um, a British animator. Um, and his battle with cancer, uh, overcoming cancer, luckily. Um, and we have um, th- right through to an American um, animated document- documentary filmmaker called Drew Christie, who uh, makes essentially little tiny music clips um, 
There's one about the holy modal rounders in, from the 1960s. And, um, so it's, a, it's a, a mixture of all different types of themes. Okay, that sounds great. Right, well, we uh, have a few announcements to make. Alex, you want to uh, start? Well, it's almost a retro announcement because normally we plug things that are going to happen. Uh, I went to the Leeds Film Festival, which is now finished, but just to, to say that I thought it was an amazing experience. They had a brilliant downstairs bar. I didn't just go there for the drinking, but in the town hall, which was done out in the style of an Italian horror movie. So they had Goblin playing in the background, trees growing out of the floor and going up through the ceiling, dry ice, uh, green spotlights. It was fantastic. <laughs> um, but in terms of what I saw at the Leeds Film Festival, I went there ostensibly uh, on behalf of a researcher to look at audiences for things like uh, their screening of Brief Encounter, which they also had a 1930s tea dance attached to and a live band, which was really nice. Um, but I saw this amazing documentary called Left on Purpose, uh, which is about a former 1970s uh, New York activist who has now decided that he wants to commit suicide because he feels detached from uh, society. And it's all about the filmmaker losing their objectivity and trying to save the subjects of their documentary. So I'm sure that'll turn up in screenings at other festivals, and I highly recommend it. But, you know, take some tissues because it's oh, wow. quite sad. OK. <laughs> well, that sounds interesting. Um, so for more information about the London International uh, Animation Festival, please go to LIAF. .org.uk You can also see a selection or book uh, tickets for a selection of the pro uh, programme from the Barbican we we uh, website. Um, Graham Humphrey's Drawing Blood is published by Proud, available from proudonline.co.uk and the exhibition is still on at Proud Camden until Sunday and on the 10th of December you can hear more about Nigel Neal at the Horse Hospital with the Miskatonic Institute uh, of Horror Stud Studies London and you can go to miskatonic-london.com for more information we'll leave you with the Sonic Strychnine Good program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.